0: This is episode 64 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're finishing up the 2020 Annual Enrichment Conference, Everyday Evangelism. This is session four, Wednesday morning, with Jeff Vanderstelt, titled The Gospel to Others. All right, good morning. How are we doing? Good? Good. Um, It's good to be with you. It really is. I... I used, to be, I, I used to be a part of a CB church, so I, the church I planted in Tacoma, which is called Soma, was a CB church, so I used to be a part of more of these gatherings, and uh, so it's kind of like a fun homecoming to, to see people again. I'm not presently a part of a CB church, but I'm um, thankful for all you're doing, and uh, it's a joy to be with you, and this business meeting was a lot more fun than the one I remember uh, 12 or 15 years ago. I don't remember what that was, but there was one that I'll never forget. Uh, some of you were there, I'm sure, so... Anyway, it's a joy to be with you, and um, I want to pray that God would continue to cement these things into our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you call us sons and daughters, for that is what we are. I pray that that would be the most dominant identity, that we are first and foremost your children, dearly loved, accepted, that with Jesus. In his baptism, we hear you say through the Spirit, these are my beloved children with whom I'm well pleased, and I pray that we would operate from that place. We are so prone to get our sense of identity and acceptance from our ministry, from fruitfulness, from people's thoughts of us, and we want to be free of that so that we can operate not needing any of that, though it's nice to have it, but not needing it because we already have it from you. So we want to rest in that this morning, even as we enter into learning again. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Right, I, I wanted to, I wasn't going to do this, and then I just thought I, I want to do something with us before we dive into the content of looking outward. I I don't know if this is true for you guys, but often what I hear people talk about when they talk about evangelism and discipleship is they they kind of think evangelism belongs here excuse the finger I I forgot my pen so it's not going to be very neat but evangelism is pre-conversion pre-coming to submit to Jesus and then discipleship is over here that's what you do with Christians and I would I would challenge that because evangelism is the proclamation of the good news the evangelist the herald of the gospel Paul said that the way we grow up into Christ is by speaking the truth in love to one another, which is the truth about Jesus. So that's evangelism. So Paul would say in order to continue to grow as a Christian, we can't have evangelism ever stop in our own lives. Like We still need people to evangelize us, share the, herald the good news to us on a regular basis. And then I would also say as I look at Jesus' life that he had people who were called his disciples who still didn't believe after his ascension, and so you see discipleship before full submission. And so you've got this weird tension. And what I, I, I'm learning to do is just say, evangelism and discipleship are the, the two sides of the same coin of leading people to submit to Jesus. <clears throat> they need to hear the good news applied to all of life for the rest of their life. And discipleship is really just the work of calling them to submit all of life to Jesus Christ. And that's an all of life thing too. And if you do discipleship pre-conversion, meaning you call them to Jesus through heralding the good news and then you help them understand what it'll look like when they finally become a child of God. Then by the time they become a Christian, meaning they are born again, they experience regeneration, they will have already been prepared in terms of what it'll look like to walk with Jesus. Too often we surprise them. We're like, aha, now you're a Christian. Now let's tell you all the things that that means. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, if you follow me, you must take up your cross daily. He said, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. You're going to experience persecution. And so unfortunately, we tell them, quote-unquote, good news and keep them away from the potential hard news. And then when they become a Christian, they're surprised that we call them to be a disciple. Instead of calling them to be a disciple of Jesus by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, trusting God by the Spirit will bring conversion, regeneration, new birth. And as it happens, then they will be walking already towards Jesus, and they'll understand that's what it always was about. So I just want to present that to you as a way of thinking, because if you only think evangelism pre-conversion, then you stop doing evangelism post-conversion, which means all of your people in your church no longer are evangelists because nobody's re- evangelizing them. Because you always do what's been done to you. Okay, I hope you, you get that. Like the way, the way that I teach it at our church is, excuse me, <clears throat> I don't have the virus, okay? Okay. Um, the way that I teach it at our church is that uh, God, whatever God does to you, he also intends to do through you. And so you're always working out your salvation, and you will always be working with other people in such a way that reflects what you have experienced. Okay, so when people say, I have a really hard time loving my neighbor, you're asking me to open up my home and have meals, I'll always take them back to the, the point at which they were welcomed into the house of God as an enemy of God. And ask them if they really believe that and remember that and remember how they were opposed to God in their hearts, but God still welcomed them to the table because of Jesus the Son and what he did. And if they can really believe that, they'll have love for their enemy, which maybe in this case was their neighbor, because they were the enemy of God. And we'll always love others to the degree in which we believe we've been loved by God. You can't actually out love the experience of love. You always gotta love with what you've received. That's why first John says, We don't love we love because he first loved us. But if you don't love your brother who you can see, but you say you love God who you can't see, then you're a liar because you actually don't know who God is because God is love. You don't know God. That's kind of his conclusion. So he's not saying you're not a Christian. He's just saying the, the degree at which you're able to love others is always connected to the degree at which you've experienced the love of God in your life. And that's connected to evangelism because we've got to keep telling people the good news of the love of God, which leads to a disciple becoming more mature in Christ and being able to proclaim the same good news they've received that makes sense? This is really important. We, when you make the dichotomy, which I'm con- more convinced the di- dichotomy is because of publishers. Because <clears throat> people are like, well, that's a discipleship book, and that's an evangelism book. And, and so we, we created our categories according to our bookshelves. Instead of saying, no, Jesus never broke those up. Uh, evangelism was discipleship. We're calling them to Jesus in every area of their life. All right. So the stuff that I did want to talk about today... Was that helpful, by the way? Yes. Okay. It might help your people because I think a lot of people are like, I'm not really into evangelism. I'm into discipleship. <clears throat> and I always tell them, you can't say that. You can't say you're, you're, you're into discipleship but not into evangelism. Jesus would never let you say the, that, that phrase. And, uh, and so they're actually two sides of the same coin. So we're going to talk about the gospel to others uh, and just practically some things that I've learned that are absolutely necessary if you're going to mobilize your people to bring the gospel to bear on the lives of unbelievers. Uh, first and foremost, maybe one of the most important things is exercise hospitality. Uh, <clears throat> I think you guys know this. Uh, it's one of the requirements of an elder that they're hospitable. Uh, and uh, the reason why is because uh, they're supposed to set an example of the flock. First Peter 5 tells us that. And so they're supposed to live amongst the flock in such a way that the, the body can see how, what it means to, to follow Jesus. And hospitality is one of the key ways in which we do that. But we have to define hospitality. I think it's really important Uh, and I'm going to define it this way, hospitality is love for the stranger expressed by making space for them. So unfortunately, in the Christian circles that I grew up in, we use the word hospitality almost in the same way as we use fellowship, which is we hang out with Christians and we have meals together. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is when you open up your home, your life, your schedule, your, your, your finances to the stranger, that you make space for them to experience, and I, I, the way I teach it is four things. They have to experience what it means to be, just literally be. It's okay to be you. So unfortunately, a lot of our hospitality is when you get cleaned up and you agree with me and believe what I believe, then I'll let you at my table. But no, I'm, I'm just saying you get to be you. You get to disagree with me, you get to have the lifestyle you have, and you're welcome in my home. Okay. <clears throat> then be known, or be with. Not only be, but I want you to experience presence. And then I'll, and I'll tell you the background of this. This is all from the Middle Eastern context. Third, then be known. We tend to be like, hey, until I know you and trust you, you're not at my table. You're not in my life. But in the Middle Eastern context, you had to actually, if a stranger walked out in front of your house and you saw them, your responsibility was to say, hey, would it, would, 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 do you need anything? Do you need to eat? Do you need to, a place to sleep? Do you need to have your feet washed? Do you, what do you need? <clears throat> Come on in and be with us, and let us care for you. And you didn't get to know their name, or their history, or their background, and didn't do a background check? <clears throat> None of that, right? And, the, and then once you did that, once they could be with you, their needs were met, they were, if they were hungry, they were fed, if they were tired, they slept, if they were, needed to be cleaned, they would get the opportunity to be, have some kind of cleansing opportunity, then you would say, now, What's your name? That was hospitality in Jesus' day. We do the exact opposite, right? And why is that why is that so important? Because Jesus when he came and the early church when they were living this out, they knew that the only way people would really come to know God is if you gave them enough space to feel safe, cared for and loved before you introduce the concepts of what he's about. That they need to experience the truth of his love before you tell them the truth of his love. That it's more experiential in nature to understand what it meant to belong to the household of God than for you to tell them about this concept of the household of God. And so that was kind of the way they did it. And then lastly, become was the last part of that. Then we want to press into their life. We want to help them become who they were meant to be. And and this is so radically different than our day. Now, I'm not saying throughout all the warnings, I... You know, like we had a, a guy in our neighborhood who was a sex offender. <clears throat> it happened before he was eighteen, so I mean, it happened when he was twenty, and it was with a seventeen-year-old girl. So it wasn't a heinous act of sex offense, but it was still a, a one that he was on the register for. And so we we did find that out because that pops up in your neighborhood. You know, you know who those people are. And so the first time he came over for dinner. We just said, hey, we just need to let everybody know this is your past because we want to honor them. So we, there's, there's principles like that that you have to walk through in a context we live in where you exercise wisdom. But I only frame it up that way because I want to back up and say, we're really far away from that, aren't we? The kind of Middle Eastern kind of hospitality that they were expressing. And I'm not saying let's all become Middle Eastern. I'm just saying when the Bible called people to be hospitable, it meant that. Okay. And so I would ask, even as elders <clears throat> or leaders of the church, are you setting an example to the church by regularly opening your table to the, to the outsider, the non-believer, let's just say it that way, the, the neighbors in your context? Uh, when we talk about hospitality at DOXA, we say uh, it, it should be, you should follow the gleaning laws. Okay? The idea of the gleaning law is that you don't glean to the edge of the field, you always leave margin for the stranger to come in and take, Right? And then we apply that to life. We say, do you have margin in your life, in terms of your schedule, to make space for someone to actually be with you? Are you so busy, your schedule's so packed, you've got zero margin? Do you have uh, an extra uh, chair at the table where they could come and eat with you? Some of us intentionally say we want to have an extra bedroom in the house that someone could actually find a place to stay if they needed it. Uh, And then we tell them to budget your finances in such a way that you've got margin to care for the stranger, to care for those who are in need when those opportunities come. And then, of course, all that requires emotional margin. Because as I'm talking, some of you are like, you're having emotional anxiety, right? Aren't you? If you're honest. Like, oh, if we bring them into our house, what will they do? You know, and and it's like, hide your kids, hide your wives. You know, you've seen that video? (laughs) Uh, and so there is that there is that anxiety that wells up, and so we have to go. What is that? And that's connected to something. And so that's where we are, uh, one of the the fruit of the spirit is self control. And we have to say, what's going on inside of me that's reacting as I think about opening my home and my life to people? And I just want to say, you you will not. I'm going to say this definitively. You will not make disciples of Jesus in your context if you don't exercise, exercise hospitality. You will not. Okay? Full stop. No buts, no ands. You will not. And the reason why is because not only will you likely not lead that many people to Christ, because they're not coming to your churches. Okay, let's be honest. In the Northwest, people, maybe where you're at, you're still living in, I don't know all your context. They don't come to church where I live. At all. Non-Christians do not come to church. I wouldn't if I were them. We live in the Northwest. Why would I sit in a building on a Sunday when I could be outside enjoying the world. I, I don't believe God made it. Why would I go go to a church to talk about that, right? So they're not coming. That's one thing. Second, they won't be discipled in the ways of Jesus if they never experience hospitality. So they've got to experience it, which means you might, you know, a good way to start is maybe start with people that you know. I, I know it's hospitality defined as love for the stranger, but if you can't do it with people in your church and teach them how to do it, they won't be able to replicate it. Now, here's the way that I teach people how to do it. I invite Christians to join me when I invite non-Christians to my table. I, I, just, I just let them see it and kind of break down the wall. I remember a couple years ago we did Super Bowl parties and <clears throat> Janie and I have several friends and some, some are, are not on the same page with us in terms of marriage. So they're same-sex married couples that show up at the Super Bowl party. And, and, I, I, just, and I, I tried to prepare our people because some of them aren't used to having friends who are in that community. Janie and I have almost always had friends in the LGBTQ community. Uh, And so they they come over and we're hanging out, and I'm watching these Christians, they're like, what do we do? You know, they they almost like avoid them, like there's something wrong, like they're they're not human or something. And I and I'm watching the whole thing. I pull them aside and go, and I had to like coach them. Hey, they're just like you. They're humans who have friendships and they like people. You can talk to them. Ask them about their relationship, ask them about how they met. And And I'm coaching them. And how to engage in a relationship with people who don't believe the same things they believe and certainly don't live the way that they live. But they've got to have a place to be. Because if they don't have a place to be, they're not going to be known. If we don't know them, we're never going to know how to share the gospel to their real story. And so if we keep them at a distance, I guarantee you we'll have no opportunity to share the gospel. And so I have to coach people in this. And as leaders of the church, we've got to set the example. That's why it's a requirement of an elder. Okay? And in fact, when I do elder assessments, it's one of the most important things. Is tell me about how you work out hospitality in your neighborhood with your coworkers, with non-believers, because you also are supposed to have a good reputation with outsiders. Which means they know you well enough to be able to tell people what you're like. And that had to the only way that happens is if they've been in your life. And so those are two requirements of an elder because the church is supposed to be hospitable and have a great reputation with outsiders. I think we've got some work to do. Would you agree? So. The beautiful thing I found, anytime I just consistently exercise hospitality with the outsider, I almost always get an opportunity to share the gospel. Almost always. I, in fact, I can't even think of somebody who I haven't got to share the gospel with, who I haven't shared table with. And it, it's just because what happens when you're having a meal together, you're having something in common. That's why we call the Lord's Supper communion. Common union around a common need and a common fulfillment of that need. Whenever you eat, something is happening at a spiritual level that God intended for you to have with somebody. That's why the Jews were had such a hard time with Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors because they saw him becoming unclean by becoming one with them, right? And so just encourage you, when that happens, something breaks and all of a sudden you have a relationship, that gives you permission to start getting to know them and eventually getting to share the gospel with them. All right, second, <clears throat> as church leaders, and the, James, I think, mentioned this the first talk, You've got to make more space in your people's lives to actually be with non-Christians. Unfortunately, we fill their schedule with church activities to the degree at which they think they're doing the right things, and you're getting frustrated because they're not reaching anybody. But it's your fault. Like, I want to say that really clearly. It's your fault. Like, the church you have is because of your leadership. I know that might sound harsh, but that's just the reality. Whenever I look around and go, man, why isn't our church more alike? And then I go, boom. Boom. I'm the leader, or we as the elders are the leaders. We set the culture. What I've found is most people in the church are really submissive and really try to do what you ask them to do, for the most part. I know you've got a few people in your mind, and you're like, yeah, Jeff, but that person. I know. That's not the norm. I always, one of my leadership axioms whenever I work with pastors is don't let the minority become the majority voice in your head. The majority of the people in your church are there because they want to follow your leadership, and they trust you. And they're submitting to you, but they're just following you. And so if you look around and go like, man, how come there's no space in people's lives for people with non-believers? Look at what you're calling them to do. If you're calling them to come to a church building on a regular basis, you're probably preventing them from making space in their home to invite the neighbor over. Okay, So I know every context is different. Mine is, I live in Bellevue. It's a commuter culture for work. Most of them are working 60 to 70 hours a week. All of them tell me they have no time. for for obeying Jesus, frankly, and I say that, I go, I've been here long enough to just tell you what I hear, you guys are saying we are too busy to obey Jesus, so that's a problem, we got to talk about that, because he gave us very clear commands, and so one of the things that we realized is that we made a commitment to only do events on Sunday at the building, and we leave Monday through Saturday completely open for them to get on mission. And now they, they get together in homes and they do other things on their own, but it's according to how they plan their schedule, not how we plan their schedule. And then we say, if you don't have space for the non-believer to be hospitable, then you've got to figure out how to clear out things in your schedule. And the thing I have many times in my church, they, they come maybe from another context and say, hey, where are all the Bible studies? And I say, well, we preach the word on Sunday. We expect for you to be in the word every day with the Lord in your own time. Uh, we have these things called DNA groups with our triads, which get together, and you know three men, three women, who process through that at a heart level. So those are our Bible studies. They're like, well, I'm used to being in a church where they do like Tuesday night or Wednesday night Bible studies. I'm like, once you're here long enough, you're going to realize you don't have enough time to be faithful to build relationships with non-believers, make disciples who make disciples, and pull off all those Bible studies. <clears throat> so, and they usually figure that out after they've been around for a while. But all I'm doing is protecting them from the, the problem that I see is that most people have way more knowledge than they have obedience, right? They know way more about the Bible than they obey. And so they've outpaced themselves in terms of knowledge and when it connects to their actual obedience to what they're doing. So I don't want to give them more reasons to be disobedient, right? The more that we give them this without the freedom to go do that, practice it, the more we're saying be hearers of the word but not doers of the word. And as leaders, if we're leading them in that way, we have an accountability as well. To say, like, let's stop just giving them more information when they haven't had any transformation and they certainly aren't obeying by living it out in everyday life. So make the space. Don't fill it. And the tendency for church leaders is if they show up to church events, they're more righteous. That's called Phariseeism. That's what Pharisees did. That's not what disciples of Jesus did. Okay? So third, we, we have to learn to listen. Uh, if, if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel to others, we first of all must become skilled at listening to people. I, one, of my, one of the things I say over and over again to our leaders who are training our people in evangelism is teach them to shut up. And that sounds harsh. But we, we had a Super Bowl party where we, and I don't say it that way to everybody, <laughs> to say it to my leaders. I'm like, we have a group of people who think they know everything and love to debate everybody. Right, and they never listen. Uh, one of the one of my favorite and discouraging stories was uh, last year we were training people how to engage Super Bowl intentionally, and that's a big deal where we're at because we have a good team. But I'm just saying that because I want to f- offend James right now because I know he hates the Seahawks. So <clears throat> we didn't end up in the Super Bowl obviously that last year. But um, so we were training them how do you engage it? How do you intentionally not this least this last one a year ago? And um, people came back, and I asked, how'd it go? And this was a group of missional community leaders that I was training and developing. And they said, half of the group, same, co- same community, half the group said, it was awesome. The other group said, it was terrible. And I said, that can't be true. Can't be both those things. Why was it awesome? And that group said, oh, it was incredible, man. We, we, we all invited non friends. They were there. And we proved to them how they're all wrong. We clearly won the debate. And I was like, and inside of me, I just wanted to go like, ah, how long have we been together? You know, like, how did you not know that's the wrong thing to do? Anyway, uh, and the other group said, yeah, that's why it was so bad. Our friends said they'll never come back. We're not here to be right. We're here to be loving so that we can tell them the truth of God's love for them in Christ. And, and so I have over and over again had to teach our people You have two ears, one mouth, that should tell you an economy. Listen more than you talk. And you won't know how to answer their questions unless you listen long enough. Proverbs says it this way, the purposes in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. I'm going to say that again. The purpose in a man's heart is like, and this should be on the screen. The purposes in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Proverbs 25. Okay, So that... The wise people are going to draw out the hearts of others, okay? Uh, When I listen to people, I listen for four things. And I do do want this on the screen if we can get that up there. Um, So listen, as you're listening to people, listen for their longings. What, What are they hungry for? Listen for their disappointments. Where has life let them down? Listen for their pain. Where have they been wounded? Listen for their hopes how do they wish the world should be? Now, man, anytime, so I, 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 I had to re-instruct that group. I said, next party you have, uh, this is what we do. We're really hospitable, which we, means we make space for people to be. And, and if you think that they're experiencing that, then let them be with, be with them, be present. And then make your goal to let them be known, which means your goal by the end of the night is to know their story if possible. Or at least one of these, longings, disappointments, pains, hopes. and okay? if you ask enough questions, you'll get all that. Francis Schaefer said, if I had one hour with a person, I would spend the first 55 minutes asking questions, so in the last five minutes, I might have some sense of some good news I could share with them. But you won't know if you don't listen long enough. And so I always tell our groups, make it your goal at the end of the party that you served well, exercise hospitality, got to know their story, and then talk together as a group, what did you hear about their longings, their disappointments, their pains, their hopes, and how could Jesus be good news to that? Okay? And I don't expect them to do that the first time. I expect them just to listen. I say, your job is not to talk to anybody about Jesus tonight. Your job is to listen long enough so you would know how to talk to him next time. Now, oftentimes, they still get to, but it's a much safer context. I was, um, I was on a plane, and I know that almost evangelism stories seem to happen on a plane, well, that's just because you're stuck with each other and uh, you have enough time. And so I was flying uh, from Seattle to Denver, and oftentimes when I sit in a, in a, a seat in the plane, I, I will say, God, it would be great if as an extroverted introvert, I could be alone if you'll let me. But if not, I'm willing to talk. So by the way, those of you who are extro- or introverts out in the, in the room, I get it. Like I come across like an extrovert, but I'm, I get recharged as an introvert. So when I get on a plane, I want to put headphones on and talk to nobody, even though I love evangelism. So I'm kind of a weird anomaly, you know, like, I would rather not share the gospel on the plane. I'm just being honest, okay? Okay, that's where I'm at. But I always say, God, this is not my life, this is yours. So if you want me to talk, you make it clear. If you'd like me to rest, I'm putting the headphones on. You make it clear. It's usually within the first five or ten minutes, you know, right? Because the first next to you like, hey, how are you? And you're like, dang it. <laughs> it's one of those. <laughs> And so this happened, and she, w- she wasn't that happy. She was like, hi, and I could tell she was not doing well, and I said, hello, and we introduced ourselves, and, and uh, I said, hey, and this question I often ask, those of you who do travel, this is an easy entry. I say, are you, are you leaving home or going home? And what I'm actually doing is I'm trying to get to their story, right? So, and she said, well, I'm doing both. I said, that's really interesting. What do you mean? She goes, well, I'm, my husband and my sons are in Denver, We've lived in Seattle. I've been staying in Seattle to finish my job. I worked there for several months. Uh, and so I'm going to see them. But the bad news is I'm, we're going to sign divorce papers. Because while I was in Seattle, now, by the way, I'm, I'm shortening the conversation. Okay, like, We didn't get this quick into what she's about to share. <clears throat> there was a lot of small talk before we got to that. Um, she said, while I was in Seattle, I had an affair. And my husband is leaving me. And he's gone on Facebook and he's telling everybody about what I've done. And my my boys now are totally against me and hate me. And and I, I just kept listening. And now, longings, disappointments, pain, hope, it's all there. Right? And I mean, and you don't always get those moments, but in this moment, I'm like, okay, what is what is her longing? Her longing is to be atoned for. Now I didn't use that word, but her longing is to have her sin paid for. So she doesn't have to go back with all the shame and the guilt. Like Her disappointment is she screwed up, and her marriage is falling apart now. She's not going to have a family. Her pain is that she has wounded people. Now everybody knows it, and they hate her. And her hope is that she could do it all over again have a a start, a new start. Do I have any good news to share with her? So I did. And at one point, as we were listening, I said, hey, and it was funny. She goes, are you a counselor? And I go, no, but I, I know one. Referring to the Holy Spirit, of course. I want to give him a little honor in the moment. She doesn't know who he is, but he's there. And uh, by the way, I think when you truly listen to people, they'll feel like they went through a counseling session. And I'm not against counseling. I I see a counselor. But I'm convinced that most people who see a counselor just are looking for a friend who will listen. Okay? And unfortunately, they have to pay to, to have somebody do that when the church should be the most listening people on the planet because we have the Holy Spirit who is the counselor. And Jesus was known for listening. Why were people attracted to Jesus? Because he listened. The Samaritan woman, she felt seen and heard. And we could keep going down the list of all the people Jesus listened to. And he asked more questions often than he gave answers. And uh, so in that moment, I I just, you know, she said, you know, your counselor said, no. And then she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And and by the way, all of you who are in ministry, you have an easy entry point to the gospel. Because As soon as you say that, People expect you to talk about God. Like, it's not even weird at that point. They may not like it, but if you don't, they're surprised you didn't. And then they're wondering if you're ashamed of him, right? That's just real. That's the, even in a culture that's secular where I live, once I say I'm a pastor, I did this once on the side of a football field with watching my son practice, and the guy said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, man, I feel sorry for you. We hate you here. <laughs> you know, and I didn't let that shut me down. I'm like, why do you hate me? You know, you don't even know me. And so we started talking. Eventually, by the end of the conversation, we were talking about him maybe reading the book by Keller, Reason for God, or C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. and like He still was open, even though he hates me. Right? Why? Because I listened. Because I was present. So when, when we shut it down, we, we, we give them everything they think we are about, which is we reject you. So I let her talk a long time, and she shared, and she felt cared for, and she felt loved, even though I didn't really know her. And I stopped, and I said, you know, there's a, the Bible teaches about this idea, it's a big word, it's called atonement, but I'm going to break it down and say what it means. It means all of us know that we've done wrong, that we were made in the image of God, meant to display what He's like, in our thoughts, our motives, our words, and our actions, but we all know we failed to do that. The Bible actually calls that sin. So it says that sin is falling short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the actual real, like, truth about what God's like. So you're feeling that right now. You realize you were made to be a particular person to display what God's like and how he would treat people, and you didn't do that. So you're feeling that falling short. And you're feeling the shame and the guilt, aren't you? And she said, yeah. I said, so that, that is the consequence of falling short. And you would love for it to all go away, wouldn't you? And she said, yeah. I said, you have an innate desire that God put in you to have somebody pay for what you've done, but you feel like you have to pay, right? She goes, yeah. So the Bible calls that atonement. And by the way, I don't always use those words, but I did with her because I thought maybe she starts reading the Bible and she sees it, she'll understand what that means. I said, you want someone to pay for this. So does your husband. So do your your sons. So do all your relatives. And who do they want to pay? She goes, me. I go, can you? Do you think that you're ever going to do enough to make up for what you've done so that they forget it? She said, no. I said, so you're going to live under the weight of the need to pay your entire life. That's really a lot to carry. So we as followers of Jesus believe that Jesus knew we couldn't. And so he came to carry the weight of your sin. I want to tell you that he went to the cross already knowing you were going to do what you did. And when he went to the cross, he took on your sin, what you did to your husband, what you did to your sons. And he died to pay in full so that he would take payment for you, he would remove the shame, he would atone for the guilt, so you could go free. I said, now, you may not believe that, but I'm telling you, you'll spend your whole life trying to atone, trying to pay, and nothing will satisfy you the deep longing in your heart for someone who is actually the true image of God paying on your behalf. That's what God gave Jesus to you for. Now I said, here's the other thing. If you actually believe this is true, and you experience Jesus lift the weight of your sin off your shoulders and take it on him, then you'll be able to even stand in the face of your husband who still might hate you and want you to pay for it, and you'll know internally, I don't and I can't. But I hope someday he will also experience what I've received. Now all you are going like, she got on her knees and prayed the prayer and, you know, and she didn't. She said, that sounds so good. Sounds too good to be true. By the way, you know that you've shared the gospel in the way you ought when it actually sounds like good news to you? Right? I hear people are like, man, I don't want to tell them the gospel. It's just it's so hard, and they're going to reject me, and they're going to be so mad. I'm like... Well, then you don't get the gospel because you should be going like, I can't wait to tell them the best news in the world that they could be set free from the weight of sin and not have shame and guilt or fear of punishment. Like, you should be eager because you know it's the best news. And when they hear it, and some of you are going like, yeah, Jeff, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Yeah, it's foolishness. It's not bad news. Okay, if you ever preach the good news and it sounds like bad news, you didn't listen long enough to their story to know how to connect it to their need. Their longing, their pain, their disappointment. But if you listen long enough, you'll go, Oh man, I've got so much good news to share for them. And they might say that sounds too good to be true, but at least it sounds good. Right? And I'm I'm concerned that most of our evangelism doesn't sound good to anybody. Right? And so you have to listen to do that. You have to listen long enough. And and you know you listen long enough because you'll have that moment where you'll go, oh, man, can't, I can't wait to tell them. I've got good news for them. But if you, if you don't get to that place where you know what good news would sound like, you haven't listened long enough yet. And so be quiet. Hold off. Don't speak. Keep asking questions. Until you listen long enough. And that could take a long time, to be clear. Not one sitting. It could take, I, one woman I'm going to tell you about at the end, it took us five years of listening before she finally received and was open. So we, we listen and we're patient and we trust God in the process because we don't save people, he does. It's not on your shoulders, it's on Jesus' shoulders. He's the savior of the world. And then listen for their gospel story as you're listening. I, I gave you this for us. Um, I want to show this on the screen again. Just do the same thing we practice doing, which is I'm going to tell my story in such a way that I make Jesus the hero. Well, you listen to, the, to their story and you'll pay attention to what's their identity in. Where do they seem to find significance or a sense of of belonging? And what is their problem? Of course, in this woman's story, there's a whole lot, and I don't have time to tell you all the things that I discovered, but one of them clearly was what people thought of her. She was just devastated that everybody knew the news. That was almost more devastating than her affair. Okay, And so as I was listening, I'm listening. She cares a lot about what people think of her, and we all do. And what's her problem? There's no way she's going to clean up that, right? And I know her real problem is that she doesn't actually see that God is the most important figure in her life that she needs to be accepted by. I know that's the ultimate problem. And until she gets that, none of this will matter. In fact, this will always feel like slavery, right? And so what is their solution? And then what is their hope? Just, you're listening for those things. I remember uh, my neighbor, Tully, who lost his job he was a, been in the, a teacher for many, many years. He was older, and so losing his job for him felt like it was the end of a career. And he, he reached out to me, and he said, hey, can we have lunch? And we had, we had built enough of a relationship through hospitality and parties together that he knew, he knows who I am, he knows what I believe, he, he's comfortable having conversations with me, and so this is, this is like after a few years of really growing in relationship. And where I'm at, it, it takes about seven years for a non-believer to come to Christ. That's about the average. Some of you are like, man, that takes a long time. So if you don't stay in your church very long, it's, you're going I never see gospel fruit. You've got to stay a long time in the Northwest, it feels like, to see that. So, um, so he shares with me, you know, I lost my job. And, and i got to be honest, like, I just feel like I, I'm not worried about getting a job. That's not my problem. I just, I just don't even, like, I, I don't know who I am anymore. He made it easy, right? When someone says that, you're like, gosh, I can't, that's like a wide open door to the gospel, right? And so I, I said, Tully, I know you've told, you have told me your story before, but could you refresh me again a little bit about what it was like growing up for you? Because that's a, that's a childhood wound right there, that statement. But I don't know who I am. Uh, there's something there that goes way, way back. And uh, so I just said, tell me a little bit about your story growing up. And he said, yeah, you know, I grew up on the ranch in Montana. I said, yeah. And, and he said, my dad was always out driving cattle. He would be gone sometimes even for days. I guess there's a lot of, a lot of territory. I'm not, a, I'm not a rancher, so I have a clue, Okay. But he said, you know, but oftentimes he would make it back. We'd have dinner together. But that'd be about the only time I'd see him was at dinner. And uh, he said, you know, my dad always told me when, when I turned 18, he would take me out and teach me uh, what he was doing so I could learn with him and we could do it together. But when I was 16 years old, my dad passed away. Boom. I don't need anything else. Right? Now I, I kept asking, you know, more questions. But I knew right in that, my mind at that moment What is his identity in? A father who sees him and loves him and validates him. He didn't have that. And how was he going to get it? Through work. Never got to do it. So, what's his problem? He's got a dad who didn't live long enough. He's now got a job that he just lost, which is where he learned to find identity because that's how he's going to find it with dad. What's his solution? He's going to get a new job. And I remember even as I talked to him, I said, so what if you get a new job? He goes, Jeff, that's the deal. If I get a new job, I could lose it. So he's got a big problem because he's got nothing secure to trust in anymore. But that problem is a great opportunity for the gospel. And so I sat down with him. I said, you know, totally all of us want our dad to be proud of us. All of us want a close relationship with our dad. All of us want to actually even do work that our dad says he's pleased with. And that's because you were designed by God. God to want that ultimately from God as your Heavenly Father. And he's, he grew up Lutheran, so he knew some of this stuff. So I said, you know, you were made in the image of God to do the work God made you to do in such a way that it would look like your father. And then he would say, I'm so proud of you. And the problem is, is you look to your earthly dad to be that for you, and you look to your job to, to provide that for you, and you lost your dad, and you lost your job, and now you're wondering who you are. And, and There's a lot of ways that the Bible defines sin, but one of the ways that the Bible defines sin is that we go to some other object to be for us what only God can be for us. We call that idolatry. I didn't say that to him, right? And so I I said, you're experiencing the, the loss of the longing not being fulfilled, but I want you to know you can have a heavenly Father who loves you even if you don't do good work, even if you fail him. And the reason why is because he sent his Son to do the work you and I don't do, which is perfectly obey God and live the human life the, the best way possible. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you not only get the sonship of Jesus so the Father can say, "Tolly, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased because of the work my son Jesus did on your behalf. And I walked him through then the rest of the gospel. And he got, we got done, and again, growing up in Lutheran Church, he said, Jeff, I've never heard anybody talk about Jesus like that before. I didn't think he had anything to do with my father or my work or anything, for that matter, other than what's going to happen after I die. Now, he didn't come to faith in that moment either. By the way, I share the gospel a lot and don't always get good responses. But that's not my responsibility. Did it sound like good news? It did to Tully. In fact, he said, that's the best version of Jesus I've ever heard. As I described for him how Jesus is the son that he couldn't be, so that the father will love Tully as he loves his own son, Jesus. So, but we have to listen to their story in order to be able to even speak into it. Fourth, we need to learn to show and tell the gospel. Notice the order. Show and tell. I know some of you are like going like, Jeff, you can't show the gospel. The gospel is news you have to proclaim. I know. Okay, Just stay with me a bit. Okay. That's why the word tells there. We show the implications of the gospel. We tell the truth of the gospel. Okay? And the way that I teach our, our team to do this... Do you want me to go back? I know somebody trying to get a picture of that. Make sure you get that. The way that we, we talk about gospel metaphors. So I have them describe the nature of Jesus, his characteristics, who he is, and then how they would display those in real time to the people in their life. And then make sure they're prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in them when people ask. Uh, another way I say it is live your life in such a way it demands a gospel explanation right? Live your life in such a way it demands a gospel explanation. In other words, your life doesn't make sense apart from Jesus, and the world thinks you're crazy for doing what you're doing. That's 1 Peter 2, right? That even if they think we're wrong, they would see our good works and glorify God someday on the day of visitation. So they might go, I don't get it. You guys are crazy. I reject your message, but I can't reject what you're doing, because what you're doing is would be something I would give God praise for because it was really good, but I don't get it. And You guys are kind of weird, right? If that isn't the way people receive you, then you're probably not living out a gospel-centered life in a way that demands a gospel-centered answer. So let me give you an example how to do this. Um, In fact, let's try it. Name some characteristics, and this is something you can do in a group or in your church gatherings. Uh, Name characteristics of Jesus you know. What's Jesus like? compassionate let's keep going i I, by the way i would write these on a whiteboard if i had the time gentle Gentle. great, present wise Wise. you can use these titles too redeemer savior reconciler all that so you could do this with a group and then stop and go okay let's talk about your context your neighborhood your workplace the people that you're engaged with that aren't yet believers which one of those aspects of Jesus do they need to encounter in this season? So let's just take present. We live in a community and there's a bunch, maybe there's a, a, a large number of widows and widowers who feel very alone in their context. And we know that Jesus is the Emmanuel, God with us. And so we decide we're going to make it our goal to make sure they're not alone anymore. And we're going to be present with them. Have meals with them, invite them over. Go and meet with them and say, can we, can we work on your house? Is there anything we can do to care for you? And all of a sudden, you just start showing the presence of Christ. And at some point, they say to you, why are you doing this? I remember I was preaching at a church in Texas. And I was talking about living this out. And I was preaching from 1 Peter 2. And I would also gone to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in you. And a woman came up to me after the gathering. And she said, man, I've got to tell you about our neighborhood. And what you were just talking about is what we're doing. There's this guy in our neighborhood. He cheated on his wife. Family blew up, he's still living in the house, family's gone. It's a cul-de-sac, so everybody knows what's going on. And people we're, we're having them over for dinner. We're trying to love on him and care for him and show the grace of Christ. And one of my neighbors came to me the other day and said, and I won't use the explicit if she used, but she did uh, like, "What the are you doing? Why are you with that guy? He's a jerk. He ruined his family. He ruined our neighborhood. And this lady, she said, and I'm kind of going like, "Oh man, she's going to tell me how she was prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in her and it's going to be Jesus." And I said, what did you tell her? And she goes, I told her, you know what? It's not hard to be nice. We just need to be nice. This is in Texas. So nice means I pretend I like you. Right? Bless his heart. You know? And, 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 and I didn't, and I, you know, in that moment I wanted to go like, what were you thinking? And then I'm realizing, no, let, let your answer be seasoned with salt. Let it demonstrate the gospel you proclaim." Don't bring shame and guilt on her. Ask more questions. So I said, okay, are there other ways you could have answered it in such a way that she would have heard that Jesus is the reason for why you do what you do? And she's like, huh. She said, what would that look like? I said, would you like me to give an example? She said, yeah. I said, what if you said, you know what? We're no different than that guy. We have been, and in Texas, everybody is a Christian, right? So um, it's a different kind of evangelism strategy. Uh, But I said, "What, what if you said, you know what, we have, we have cheated on God. We've been unfaithful to God. And God didn't reject us, but he accepted us and loved us at the cost of his own son's life. And because he loved us when we were sinners, we can now love others that have also hurt us through sinning. And she's like, oh, that's good. <laughs> By the way, if you always say, what, what, how would I make much of Jesus in this answer? That'll help you answer the question. How will I make much of Jesus in this answer? Because what did she actually do? She robbed Jesus. She took the credit. Like, it's not hard to be nice. I'm a good person. Instead of going, like, no, it's because of him. Donald Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines has a chapter on evangelism. I encourage you to read it. But one, one thing he, he tells a story of a, a man who came to faith uh, through an evangelistic crusade on a weekend. And he tells it from the vantage point of the owner of this business. This owner of this business happens to be a Christian. This guy who came to faith was his employee. And he comes back on Monday, and he's telling everybody, you'll never believe what happened. My life's forever changed. I met Jesus. I realized I need him as my Savior. And he's basically just preaching the gospel at the workplace. And the boss, who's been praying for this guy for a long time, says, oh, my goodness, it's so good. I'm so glad to hear this. I've been praying that you would come to faith in Jesus. And the employee says, what? What? You're a Christian? Here's the deal. He says, You were the man I looked up to the most. You're a good man. You're a fair boss. You're kind. You're generous. For years, I've wanted to be like you. Because you never told me that you knew Jesus, I didn't think I needed Jesus to be like you. So I've not been interested at all in Jesus Christ because I want to be a good person. And I figured if you didn't need Jesus to be a good person, then I don't need Jesus to be a good person. By the way, your good works can lead people away from Jesus if you don't give Jesus credit for your good works. And that that may be one of my biggest concerns for the church is that we go out and do lots of good justice and mercy and care for people and love on them, but we never tell them the reason why we do it. And Jesus says you're leading people to hell by doing that. Making twice the comfort of hell by just saying it's good works that makes me who I am instead of Jesus Christ. And so we got to be prepared to give an answer for the hope. I was telling you about Tully, his wife, Amy, was in our neighborhood and obviously married to him, so knew her. They're now divorced, unfortunately. But uh, we were having a brunch on a Sunday morning. By the way, when we asked the question, how do we make space for nonbelievers, we realized as a church, one of the ways to make space was to take one Sunday off a month and encourage all of our people to have brunch in their home and invite all their neighbors who certainly weren't at church on Sunday morning. By the way, it's also a sure way to not get Christians coming to the event because they're going to a church service, right? So we, we, we could be almost 100% sure they were not a Christian, or at least walked away from the, the faith. And so we'd have these brunches, and one brunch, they were talking about my neighbor who lives across the street, who put, had a sign put up in front of his house, the only one in the whole street that says no parking, unless you have this particular permit, of which he only has. So he had some work with the government to get that. We don't know how that worked. He also was the pastor of the Lutheran church in town. And so we're sitting around having brunch with all these neighbors, and they start talking about him. And it gets really bad. They're like, yeah, man, he's a jerk. He does this. We think he's got b- people buried in his basement. I mean, it just goes like, whoa, how do we get from parking to killing? That's a big jump. And, uh, and I just stop, and I go, hold on, wait a minute. Like, what, what, why, what are we doing? He's not here. We're talking so bad about him. My wife and I had him over for dinner this last Friday night. And then, of course, they're like, oh, you're in with him, right? And I said, I want to be honest. Like, I was surprised. He was very kind. He brought a, a bottle of wine for the meal and flowers for my wife. And we sat down and we ate, and I heard a story. And when I heard a story, a lot made sense to me. This man is a very broken man. He has been hurt by many injustices in his life. And he's just trying to control his world and protect himself from getting hurt again. And he's trying to keep everybody at distance because he's been hurt too much. I said, I don't agree with what he's done. And I, I didn't tell you the rest. He would, he, if you parked under that sign, he would take a, a piece of paper that said, Hey, idiot, can't you read? And then it went, talked about how he's going to call the police on you and all that. And then he would glue it on your windshield. So you would get in your car, you'd see this. And then you got to get it off, which would usually mean you ruin your, your windshield getting that thing off. So there's reasons why people had to be angry. But as they were talking I said you know I agree with you what he's doing is wrong that's not how we treat our neighbors but man I would love it wouldn't you love it if there'd be a day when he's eating a meal with us and he's asking you guys to forgive him for the way he treated you and since he's not in the room I'm just gonna ask that we don't talk about him anymore because he can't defend himself and it's not really fair and it's not very loving even if he's been unloving to us let's not return it now, these are all non-christians by the way, when you call people to the life you know God wants for them, and then they realize they don't want it or they can't do it, you're creating an opportunity for them to go, then why in the world can you do it? Right? And so later that week, Amy comes up, she goes, I won't, what the, you know, she swears like crazy. <laughs> By the way, you've got to get used to that if you're going to hang out with Christians. Don't be easily offended. Just let it happen. It's not about you. And she's like, I, you know, I don't understand why you did that. That guy's a jerk. What is up with you? I just created a gospel metaphor. It's called Advocate. Now I get to talk about our advocate. I said, you know, Amy, right now I can't represent myself before God. In fact, if I tried, I would fail because I am a sinner. I am, I've fallen short. You know me well enough. You know how I, I, you've seen my life. You see how desperately I need somebody who could forgive me because she's watched me. She's watched our life. By the way, don't hide your sin. One of the best examples of the gospel's good news is when people see you fail and then you experience grace and forgiveness instead of trying to pretend like you have it all together because then they think being a Christian is, I have it all together. Not I have a savior who saves me of my sin. And I said, you've watched my life. I can't be an advocate for myself before God in heaven. There is one who is and that's Jesus and he's speaking better words than I deserve right now before God the Father so that I can speak better words to people about people in my neighborhood that they don't deserve either. I'm only doing this because he's done it for me. That's all. And she, you know, she said, she goes, Jeff, I don't know if I'll ever get you. She didn't say that sounds like bad news. She doesn't get it. And it, it, it shouldn't be understandable to the, the non-regenerate person, but it should be actually interesting. They should be curious. And so I could tell you many, many more stories, but I don't have time uh, of that. I would just encourage you to to teach your people how to do that because... The beautiful thing about the body of Christ is it's a body. It's physical. We're real. And we're meant to show up in such a way that the very lives we live look like the gospel we proclaim actually worked. That it's changed us. That it transformed us. That it's transforming us. And that the real truths of Jesus are working themselves out in our everyday life. Though we fail at it like crazy, what if a group of people said, let's try to be advocates this week together. Let's try to be present in a place where people feel lonely. Jesus fed the hungry. Let's feed the hungry, but let's tell them why. Jesus stood up for the victims. Let's stand up for the powerless, the victimized. Jesus actually had meals with people that the religious people had nothing to do with. Let's do that. By the way, if you begin to do this, the people who will be most upset about it will be religious people because they'll be frustrated that you're hanging out with people we shouldn't hang out with and then you'll start looking like jesus because he was known as a drunkard and a glutton because of who he hung out with may that be true of us may that be true of our churches one of the things that happened early on in my church and i'll close with this we just started saying how can we be the kind of people who non-christians want to be with a lot and so we learned how to throw really good parties we learned how to exercise great hospitality. I had some people who were really good at that trained me on how to really be good at creating space. And I remember some pastors called me to have a special meeting. I, I'd been in the city for about three years working as a church planner. And they said, we want to talk to you, Jeff. We're real concerned. I said, what are you concerned about? They said, You're, you guys are being known in the city as like the party church. And I said, what's your concern? And They're like, well, like you're having parties with non-believers. I said, still not sure what the concern is. I said, well, what are people gonna think? And I said, who? You mean the non-believers? They're having a great time. They're feeling loved. We're baptizing new believers. We're not compromising, we're not getting drunk, we're not doing things that we we ought not to do. We're not giving ourselves over to sin. We're just creating space where non-believers feel comfortable We get to know their stories, and we're sharing the gospel. And they're like, yeah, but we we just are concerned about your reputation. I said, I don't care one bit about my reputation, especially with the church. As an elder, I have to have a good reputation with outsiders. Do you think we've got that yet? And they said, I mean, they were very frustrated with me, and we talked years later, and we're better now. But it didn't make sense to them, because they had learned how to turn the wagons inward and primarily think about themselves. And the idea that you would leave the 99 for the lost sheep was unheard of. The idea that you would be thought poorly by Christians so that Christians would actually think well of Jesus was unheard of. And I'm telling you, we've got to die to that and become a whole lot more like our king, who is willing to be of no good repute with the religious leaders so that he could be of good repute with the unbelievers and sinners. Amen? May God help us. Let me pray for us. Father, I I know that these men and women want to see people who don't know you come into your family. Lord, I pray you'd grant them wisdom to know how to apply these principles. Give them discernment to do them in a way that's careful, that's wise, that's gentle, that's kind. Lord, give them favor with their people that they lead so there would be a great deal of trust as they lead their people to love the lost. Lord, empower them by the Holy Spirit to speak your word boldly with gentleness and respect, seasoned with salt. So it would sound like good news to the hearer. And Lord, grant them the favor of your spirit that you would open doors for the gospel to be proclaimed. And Lord, we ask for souls. We pray that you would bring people to yourself. There's so many lost so many hurting, so many far from you. And we live next to them. And they work with us. And they're in our cities. God, shine your light brightly through your people. Would you reach the Northwest for your glory? Would you give us confidence that you're not done? That you haven't abandoned us, but you are here, and you are at work, and you are preparing the way, and you are making hearts ready We pray that we'd have the courage to love people at the risk of being thought poorly of, at the risk of loss of anything. God, give us your heart. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That happens to me when I pray for lost people, by the way. Um, And partly because I know too many that are going to hell apart from Christ. And I, I would tell you, if, if, if you can't pray and have your heart well up for people, then you don't know them yet. Get to know them, please. I urge you. Would it be that these coming years could be the most fruitful evangelistic years in the Northwest? That, that's my prayer. That's my prayer. If we can serve you more, i just put our website up there. This is not an advertisement. We coach pastors all over the world on how to help their church become more outward-facing, become disciples and make disciples. And really learn how to do this themselves first. Because you have to lead by example. So if we can help you, let us do that. The handbook that's out there is really a guide for groups to go through to learn how to be gospel fluent. So I hope this served you well. It's a blessing to be with you family. It felt like a homecoming. Thanks for welcoming me so well. Love you guys.